Hey, good morning, everybody. One of the enduring books of the business books of the last generation uh, was Jim Collins' uh, Good to Great. It, it has some flaws, but it's really got some wise ideas in it. How many of you have read Good to Great? You read that book, Collins' book. Okay, quite a few. Um, here's one of my favorite concepts in the work. It's the who, then, what concept. Collins and his researchers do a really fine job exposing um, the import that this principle has in organizational success. Let me, let me read it to you. Get the right people on the bus, the wrong people off the bus, and the right people in the right seats before you worry about where you're going to drive the bus. Who, then, what? Many of you who serve in business, who serve in sports, have experienced the significance of this. You've, you've got to know the right personnel, and then you can start working together. Uh, there's a similar concept in learning and in education. One of the great American educators was Mortimer Adler. I find many repeatable bits of wisdom in Adler, and this is one of my favorites. I call it Adler's Rule. He didn't call it that, but I do. He said this, for best understanding, first discover who, then work on what. Discover the who, then work on what. When you're reading, when you're, when you're watching something, first find out who is speaking. And, and that is going to help you understand. Also, if you can, discern their audience. To whom are they trying to, to write? Whom are they speaking? And then once that's settled, then figure out what. What is his or her big idea? You got it? Who, then what? It is a classic formula for adventure, for change, for learning, for success. Discover the speaker in the audience first, and then grasp the big idea. Now, long before Jim Collins, even before Dr. Adler, there was a guy named Peter, the Apostle Peter, and he was laying out adventurous life change in his first famous letter. Turn there if you would. It's in your Bible. It's called the book of First Peter. First Peter is near the end of your Bible, uh, right after James. Uh, if you get to Hebrews, keep going just a little bit. You get to First Peter. Let's read chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Okay, as we launch into this study of 1 Peter, let's, let's examine this important big picture data here. First question that we ask, you'll see this in your notes, is who is Peter? Peter is a business owner. He owns a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee isn't bad fishing. It's, it's, a, it's a good but not great living. But amazingly, within a four-year period, this businessman, Peter, is going to take primary leadership within the kingdom of God. Talk about moving from good to great, right? Peter's just a guy. He's a guy running a fishing company on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee until one big idea began to dominate his life. And that big idea is that God's grace has come through Messiah Jesus. Now, we're going to discuss Peter's big central idea, his theme, more in a moment. For now, I just want you to notice that this concentration on that one big idea, this transformed Peter. Peter began as this intuitive, bold, pugnacious follower of Jesus who denied his Lord in the critical hour. He morphs into this undaunted point man for the church of Jesus in Jerusalem. Look at this change. You do know Peter is the most discussed person in the Gospels after Jesus. After Jesus, no one has more print than, than Peter. And from these sources, here's what we learn. Peter was hot-headed. He was impetuous. He was argumentative, rebuking Jesus, even denying him. But after 
Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter becomes renowned for his wisdom. He's transformed into a man who is brave and and compassionate, brilliant in reasoning, proclaiming Jesus publicly, a holder of the office of apostle and a person willing to suffer for Christ. That's our first two. That's Peter. Now, let's get to a what. What is Peter's big idea? If you look in your notes, uh, we're so thrilled to be with you wherever you are. Uh, You should have a link that will get you to the notes. You guys have a bulletin. Open it up and you'll see there the theme of our journey through 1 Peter. Here's what 1 Peter is, is is all about. Peter's first general letter is one of those rare books where a clear purpose statement is delivered. Uh, just like with John's gospel in your Bible, the purpose statement comes near the end. By the way, the purpose statement, we'll read it in just a second, is in 1 Peter 5.12. For what it's worth, in John's gospel, it's John 20.31. Now, that declaration to stand in God's grace obviously sets the tone for the entire epistle and drives Peter's argument. Okay, here's Here's what we're talking about. 1 Peter 5.12 says this. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, uh, also called Silas, Silvanus is the guy that is the scribe. He's the partner writing this with Peter. I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's read that big idea again. Let's read it together. 1 Peter 5.12. Here's the whole theme statement for this book. 1 Peter 5.12 altogether. I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter expects Christians to see the truth of God's grace and stand strong in it. He doesn't want people stumbling around in legalism or other nonsense. He expects, he commands us to stand firm in grace. That theme permeates every part of that le- this letter just as it permeated Peter's own transformed life. But for example, just consider the passage we read just a second ago, right? In light of Peter's avowed dedication that we stand firm in grace, listen again to the greeting, okay? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May what, everybody? Grace and peace be multiplied to you, or you could translate it, be yours in fullest measure. Do you see what God desires for us through Peter's pen? That grace and peace are ours through fullest measure. That's what this is all about. It's all about obeying Jesus by accepting his provision in his blood. Stand firm in grace. My family once spent most of an afternoon, in fact, almost an entire afternoon, just sitting and looking at this painting at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. It's Rembrandt's painting. Anybody know what this painting is commonly called? Mm-hmm. The Night Watch. I thought that was its name. I didn't know until we went there. The official title is The Militia Company of District 2 under the command of Captain Franz Bonnet Koch and Lieutenant Wilhelm van Reutenberg. I thought I was bad at titles. Um, it's a fascinating painting, maybe, maybe the greatest painting ever made, certainly one of them. Now, one of the noteworthy aspects of that day that my family spent just sitting and taking in that painting was listening to all the other people who wandered in and spent a few minutes standing there around them, behind them, looking at the painting. Here's the things my kids heard. They heard people say, hey, that's a city gate behind them. And it is. Somebody else noted, they're musketeers. And by the way, they were. District 2 was known for using muskets. That was their defense weapon of choice. 
Rembrandt himself is in the painting. Look, he's in there. He's the guy peeking behind the shoulder, which is very likely true. Rembrandt kind of liked doing that. Not quite Albert Hitchcock, but Alfred Hitchcock, but that sort of thing, like putting himself in. Um, somebody said, there's a dog, there's a dog barking, and the dog is barking. It's excited, there's movement. And then everybody always says this, there's a chicken. There's a chicken hanging from this girl's dress. Now, all those observations are correct. Those comments are accurate, but none of them gets to Rembrandt's big idea. And the funny part was, all the time they were there, no one got to Rembrandt's big theme. The main theme of that painting is standing firm in grace. The big idea is standing firm to protect the gift of God's grace. I want you to look. What is the brightest part of the painting? Why don't you bring the cameras in on the slide there. Take a look, everybody. What's the brightest part of the painting? What's the part of the painting where somebody is, space is being created around them? It's the little girl, right? It's the little girl with the oddly grown up face, right? And a chicken, right? Now, the lieutenant is also in yellow. That's to balance her chromatically. But your eye is drawn to the child in this image. The, the other people are important. The, the captain, the captain has his sash. That's his sash of office. You see how he has the ruff? Anytime you see a ruff in a medieval painting, that means the person was in the nobility. You couldn't wear those unless you were noble, all right? The, the lieutenant has on a steel gorget. That steel gorget is also a sign of office. That means that he has the power to receive orders and to give orders. But look at the little girl. Oh, she outshines them. You, you've got a ruff? She has a crown. That's not a sign of just nobility. That's a sign of what, everybody? Royalty. There is, and this becomes very clear a few years ago when they finally cleaned the painting after centuries of muck on it. There is a fuzzy halo-like quality around her. Now, that's used in painting to depict something that is spirit. It's not really there. You see it, but the people don't necessarily see it. And what color is she dressed in? What color is she dressed in? Gold, resplendent in gold. Now, I want you to catch this. Rembrandt did something very, very different here. Look, look. there were many other companies that, that had their part in defending Amsterdam as well, these private companies that defended their city. And almost all of them had their portraits made. They were very important. So, so here's another one. This one's like 10 years before Rembrandt. Uh, Picanoi did a nice job. Here's another company. Look, they're almost all nobles in this one, right? Uh, but it's a very static picture. Rembrandt, the great master, put action in his portrait, and he stuck in this golden figure as the spiritual embodiment of the city. That's why her face is not young. She's not a child. She's a city. She represents an entire city, city-state, we would say. She's decked in gold. Do you know why she's decked in gold? Because gold, the Dutch considered the picture of God's grace. And they saw their state appropriately as having been crowned by God's grace. If you've never read a history of Holland, you should. This, this state was absolutely miraculously birthed out of intense persecution, intense persecution because they wanted to study the Bible and follow Jesus. And they somehow amazingly won a series of wars and established themselves as a free independent company. And by this point in their history, they were still in full appreciation of the amazing grace of God in their country. And get the last part here. The girl's got a what on her dress? What has she got hanging there? Do you know what the symbol of Company 2 was? It was a chicken claw. Their symbol was a chicken claw. So that golden female has the chicken claw prominently sticking out. That shows that these men are dedicated to defending God's 
grace. You got it? The night watch is all about defending. It's about them standing for, about being tied to, literally tied to God's grace. Isn't that cool? Now, in a similar fashion, I have heard 1 Peter taught many, many times. And well-educated people have looked over this book, and they have cried out about particular sub-themes. And just as with the night watch painting, their observations are, are accurate. They're, they're noting important parts of the picture. But here's what happens. So often, people will get hung up on the sub-themes, and they miss the big idea of the book. And the big idea is just like the night watch painting. It is to stand fast in grace. Got it? Look, if you miss that, if you miss that, you will inevitably misunderstand this book. All right, Peter's sub-themes sub are important, so let's answer our, our, our what question. A what question is, what are his other themes? Big idea, standing grace, but there are three sub-themes that, that flesh out this transformed life of grace. Number one, the Christian is a pilgrim, just, just passing through this world. Number two, the Christian has a higher purpose. Uh, you know what other people live for, avoidance of pain, amassing of wealth, other things that can be fine, but those are... Those are Absolutely incomparable to the calling the Christian has, which is a, a permanent, purposeful living for eternity. And number three, the Christian is transformed and empowered to live differently in light of that. Got it? This isn't our home. We're expected to live differently while we're here because we're empowered to live according to a higher calling, a permanent promise. Until his death, Alan Stibbs was a teacher at Oak Hill College in London. And I don't think there was anyone on the planet who was a who was a better studied expert on Peter than, than Mr. Stibbs. He did a beautiful job exposing these three sub-themes as they relate to modern life. I, I want to share this with you. Look what, this really moved me as I was studying. Here's what he had to say about the first sub-theme, Christians of Pilgrim. He says, when scientific achievement, the welfare state, and dialectical materialism combine to make our century too worldly-minded, uh, that's, that's a, a fancy way to talk about the problems of, of communism and capitalism, um, by the way, is that a description of what we're facing right now? you got the scientific achievement, welfare state, communism, capital. Spot on, right? Make our century too worldly-minded. I mean, not us. Other people get too worldly-minded. He says, First Peter recalls us to the heavenly and eternal outlook and reminds Christians that there are but strangers and pilgrims here. Amen? David Wade, I was discussing this with David Wade of our pulpit team, and David sent this. He is a very wise man. I want to share with you what he shared with me. David said, Wayne, this point, that, that we're pilgrims, this has been the most important thing in changing my perspective on the dysfunction of the world, the suffering that is part of this life, and how I should live undaunted in the face of it all. As Dr. Constable said at seminary, Christians are really citizens of heaven, and our sojourn here on earth is only temporary. Now, uh, Peter's, that's the first sub-theme. Stibbs goes on about number two. Similarly, when relief from physical disease and the provision of physical comfort tend to be treated by some as the primary Christian objective, stop right there. Do you, he wrote this before COVID existed. All right? And, and absolutely nothing against human health, and we are, we are called to be healthy. God tells us to take care of these temples of the Holy Spirit, right? But you do realize that... None of us, of course. But other Christians have, over the past couple of years, lived exactly what he's saying. We have lived as if the most important thing in the world is to be rid of physical disease. Oh. Oh, that's, that's sick. You get the... Anyway, all right. 
When these tend to be treated by some as the primary Christian objective, we need the reminder of 1 Peter that holiness matters more. And that all who would follow Christ must, in a selfish and sinful world, be prepared to suffer for righteousness' sake and to recognize... He's not saying we seek suffering. That's not Peter's point. But we are willing to suffer and recognize God uses suffering for the highest good. That's something, too. We've got a higher purpose than the mere avoidance of pain. We get to glorify God by pursuing holiness. He also describes, Mr. Stibbs does number three, something three. Also, when moral standards tend to seriously decline, oh, well, thank goodness that's not happening now. And when genuine young converts to Christ are tempted to spend their enthusiasm completely on TikTok, I'm sorry, I may have I read that wrong, their enthusiasm more in words than deeds, we need the challenge of 1 Peter to express our response to Christ and the gospel in transformed behavior in relation to our fellow men. We're supposed to live differently. That means we experience grace. We don't just talk about it. By God's grace, standing firm in it, we are transformed into people who shine like stars in a dark world. Amen? Okay, now that we've got a grip on the book, the big idea, the sub-themes, with that in mind, let's look at the text again. There are three more who questions that are answered right here. First, who were these people? That's the question, by the way, on the, on the top of the right side of your notes. To whom is Peter writing? I, of course, he's writing to us. This is Scripture. But it's also important to understand who the the recipient first audience was because knowing them can help us understand phrases used in the letter. Peter's audience are the churches that are found in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, uh, north of the Taurus Mountains. I don't have the mountains on here, but north of the Taurus Mountains are the ones to which he's writing. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. By the way, Bithynia included Paphlagonia. Uh, This map is is a regional area. The Romans considered that one. And then this that will later be called Phrygia, the north part of that was called Asia at the time that, that Peter wrote. From a Christian perspective, there's one really, really intriguing thing about these provinces that are north of the mountains, and that is that the Apostle Paul never went there and never wrote to them. Paul went everywhere. He wrote everybody, or at least it seems like that, doesn't it? But in the fascinating interplay of of Peter and Paul, in the respect they have, this bunch was left for Peter. Now, these recipients are clearly Christians. Peter calls them brethren, a term that's only used to people who trust Jesus, They were undoubtedly mostly Gentile. I know it says scattered, uh, the diaspora dispersed, and that makes people think of Hebrews, but that's not here. There were very, very, very few Jews who lived in this area here. Actually, it may be a cute play on words because Galatia and Bithynia were settled by people who had been dispersed by the Romans from what we call France. They were called Gauls, and that's why this area is called Galatia. Right? It's named for them. Um, the, these, these people were mostly Gentile. And what's intriguing is, and this is really intriguing, Peter uses a lot of Jewish references in this letter. Now, he uses a lot of Gentile references too, but, but look, look at just what we just read today, our passage today. There's an obvious allusion here to temple Hebraism, right? Peter pictures our sanctification through Jesus' sprinkled blood. That doesn't make any sense to you if you don't know the Old Testament about the idea that sacrifice blood was used to, to sanctify people, to make them ceremonial clean. So how did these Greek brethren who live in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, how did they gain enough of a grasp of Hebrew basics that they could follow Peter's reasoning? You ready for the answer? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think anybody else does either. We know they had Paul's letters also. 
Uh, that'll come up later. And, and, and it, it, Paul uses lots of Hebrew references, so that may have educated them. It may be that the very few Jews who were in these churches had taken such leadership positions that they were wonderfully educating and helping people understand the images in the Scripture. It's all speculation. What is for sure is Peter writes with a healthy Jew-Gentile mix in his metaphors in this book, and both are supposed to be sensible to his audience. Now, let's turn to a far more important second question, who is God? In today's text, we've got some vital theology. Peter tells us a great deal about who God is. Let's read verse 2 one more time. I want you to look for answers to this burning question, who is God? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the... whom, everybody? Father, through the sanctifying work of the, to be obedient and be sprinkled with the blood of, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. First of all, God is triune. The, the Son, the Father, the Spirit, they're each mentioned in this passage, and each is treated as deity with no variation in power. Jesus sends apostles. The Father chooses Christians. The Spirit makes them clean and capable. Each of them is, is involved equally. All are necessary. And further, Peter's description implies that they function as one, each and all. P Peter is not depicting three gods. That would be anathema to his Hebrew mind. One triune God, one God in three persons. Peter teaches us God is triune and that God is in charge. Boy, Peter's no coward. You know what, you know what are the two most difficult concepts in biblical theology? The Trinity and God's sovereignty. And he jumps into both of them right here off the bat. The sovereignty of God is revealed in foreknowledge in our passage. The Greek term is prognosis. Uh, on the count of three, you get to say it with your wonderful Greek accent, prognosis. One, two, three. Prognosis. What does it sound like? What English word does it sound like? Prognosis. All the medical people got that correct, right? Uh, it's what we translate foreknowledge, but prognosis is it's more than just foresight. It is forethought. Um, it's a word for something that is fully envisioned beforehand. So, uh, Prognosis, sadly, in our day has become uh, used as prognosis, which is just an educated guess. We use it in medicine. You know, th this is the prognosis. This is what's expected to happen, and that's fine. But, but that's not prognosis. Prognosis is more sculptor than surgeon. Um, for example, uh, John Bell did an amazing sculpture in 1876 called America. Uh, for the centennial of America's uh, history. And, uh, and this is his sketch from two years before. Two years, he planned it out, everything, sketching it, getting it all together, drawing it by hand. That's prognosis. Prognosis is something that is, that is not just a general prediction. It is a foreordination. In other words, Peter is saying, look what he's saying. God purposefully chose Christians to be his own. He sculpted history just for us. Nothing is random. All occurs according to God's plan. Please do not call this fatalism. That is a small-minded charge that is brought against Peter by people who just want to be God themselves. In reality, the Bible teaches both that human beings have responsibility and that God is fully sovereign. I know. I know what you're thinking. You're, you're thinking, ah, I kind of can this. We mind cannot comprehend how for God is fully sovereign. Laird and folk, I had choices. Right? I know, I know that we all think about the interplay of God and humans in a Scottish accent, so I, just, I, did it, I did it that way. But relax, Scotty, just relax. Just because we don't fully comprehend something doesn't make it untrue. As theologian R.C. Sproul famously wrote, when there's something in the Word of God that I don't like, the problem's not with the Word of God. It's with me. God is in charge. Now listen, 
The truth of that is supposed to comfort. Everywhere prognosis appears in Scripture, it's meant to uplift, to inspire, to, to delight the Christian, not make your head hurt, right? For example, Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 6. I, I want us to read this. You join me on the underlying parts of the text. But, but as we read this, listen, feel the encouragement. This is a passage replete with God's sovereignty, and it is so incredibly uplifting. Let, let's read it together. He, the Father chose us in him, Jesus the Son, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Amen. Cindy Sharp of our pulpit team had a great comment about God's sovereign choice. She wrote me and said, It's comforting to know that I cannot screw it up. I cannot be stupid enough, not bad enough, or off my game so much that it thwarts his plan. Amen. Do you see, God is in charge. Also, 1 Peter 1, Ephesians 1, hundreds of other passages point out that God is gracious. Peter shows God's grace through specific blessings. He says, grace and peace be magnified to you and through election. You know, you know throughout the scriptures, every time there's a reminder of God's election, it's supposed, it's supposed to see us, we're supposed to see it as an example of God's grace. Here's the scriptural concept. The scriptural concept is that it is shocking that God saves anyone. The fact that he does so at all is unspeakably gracious. Look, Everybody look up here at the slide. I want to show you something very important. I'm going to give you a complete list of all the human beings who deserve God's gracious salvation. I'll give you time to read the list, so it may take a while. We deserve nothing but hell. And anyone who says otherwise is selling you something. God is gracious. In fact, in fact, Peter's language is reminiscent of one of the great grace choice statements in Deuteronomy. This is deep in the Hebrew thought. Deuteronomy chapter 7, For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Peter's going to draw more on this parallel later. Christians are chosen by our gracious God similarly to how Israel was set aside for him. Neither deserves any grace. But by God's kind choice, they can receive it. And this sparks joy. Psalm 105, verse 43, shows the joyfulness that is inherent in God's gracious choice. Here's what God's grace does right here. Let's read it together. Psalm 105, verse 43. He brought his people out with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. Okay, you read that well, but rejoicing and joy, and you read it as if you were at some kind of simple thing. If you don't read that with joy this time, we are doing Simon Says. Do you understand me, boys and girls? All right, let's do it again. Psalm 105, verse 43. He brought his people out with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. It is a wonderful thing that God is gracious. Amen? Amen. Finally, Peter shows us what God does. You know what he does? He sculpts Christians. The, the triune God is at work in the life of the Christian. He is sanctifying you, making you holy. Look, look again at all those activities mentioned for Father, Son, Spirit, and notice this. Every one of those activities has to do with you. The Father plans just for you. The Son spills His blood just for you. The Spirit works specifically to set you aside for His service. How great is that? 
Do you realize the depth of engagement this represents? God is at work in each Christian's life. Now, don't misunderstand. You're not the center of the universe. Peter's going to make it very clear that being pampered and spoiled is not God's plan for his people. In fact, the whole purpose of his work in Christians is to enable us to share his work. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. We are worked on to become ourselves great workers. Look, here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned out for us long ago. The very God of the universe is at work in your soul, Christian, and that reality changes everything, which takes us to our final who. Peter tells us important information about who we are. Now, in in Peter's scripture, who are we? The beginning answer that we'll cover today is in those two sub-themes that are brought right up there at the beginning. First, Christians are sojourners. Do you see that? Exiles, dispersed. Those words are used on purpose. They are intentional reminders for the Christian that this is not our home. When we were discussing all this, Jonathan Satchel of our team sent me a photo of this art. Uh, Jake Weedman is a very talented artist. He created a commission called the Sojourner's Rose. It's based on 1 Peter chapter 1. It's a compass. The idea that we are travelers going through, using our compass. And, and you probably can't read it, but in beautiful script around it, it says, True the course of sojourners be, whose bearings are followed faithfully. True the course. We're sojourners. We're just traveling through, and we faithfully keep our eyes on our pioneer Jesus. Over a year ago, Pastor A.J., um, preached up here, and and he used as his exit music after the message this song. It's by an old Christian rock group called Petra. Uh, It's called Not of This World. We are strangers. We're aliens. We're not of this world. We are envoys. We must tarry with this message we must carry. There's so much to do before we leave with so many more who may believe. Our mission here can never fail, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus told us men would hate us, but we must be of good cheer. He's overcome this world of darkness, and we will soon depart from here. Close quote. Who are we? We're just travelers passing through. And we Christians are empowered to live differently. Peter says we're chosen to be obedient. Now, now, now look here. The, the, the Greek here is really intriguing. This is actually one connected thought in the Greek. Through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. Think about that. Through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. The Christian is meant to live differently in obedience. But this obedience is not by human merit. It it is through the sanctification of God's Spirit. It's through the application of Jesus' sanctifying blood. We don't just work harder and choose to obey. We rely on God's Spirit who empowers us to live differently. That's what's represented by the old Hebrew practice of sprinkling blood. I received an excellent note about this. Got this note from a young mom. One of the best notes I've ever gotten in my life, I think. She said, Wayne, I was picking up meds at the local pharmacy. One of my boys was sick, and I was one tired mama. I was going round and round with a not-so-helpful helper behind the counter. Anybody ever been in that situation? All right. My very human self wanted to rip into her, but it was as if the Spirit had a hold of me with one hand over my mouth. I was so upset, it sure as heck was not me keeping my attitude at bay. I, she says, surrendered to God in that moment. And the Spirit even put a sincere thank you in my mouth as I left. What? She wrote. What? How can that be? We are empowered to live differently. Please write this on your heart. You and I live differently. 
Not because of us, but because of what God has done and is doing in us, which is precisely our series objective. This is what we hope to see God accomplish in us through 1 Peter, that we live by the grace of God, persevering today in light of tomorrow. It's not easy to handle all the pains of this life, is it? No. But Peter teaches us to know who God is and who we are. He teaches us to stand firm in grace, and that truly makes all the difference. That's why our logo for this series, look at your bulletin or look at the slide. Um, it has a person who is standing in awe of the sun. Notice that, that he's standing on a solid foundation. He's granted this perspective to see above it all. That's what First Peter does. It establishes on a foundation of grace and gives us eyes to see above all the cloudiness of this life. When we look at this text, we, we, we see that the triune God is sovereign. He's gracious. We see a we see above all the fogginess of this earth, and we glimpse the encouragement of God the Son. Of course, much of the time, the clouds are really thick in our eyes, aren't they? Thus, our series premise. Look at our premise. Why, this is why. This is why you and I are studying this. The Christian needs to understand the simple truth of God's grace and live by it alone. Christians should dwell on earth as people who are bound for a future grander than anything temporal, transformed by God's gracious selection and operating according to a greater purpose. Sadly, that is rarely our experience necessitating our engagement with God's word from Peter. When we so engage... The Lord changes not only us, but the world, and I mean every word of that. First Peter is not concerned that you and I just get by until heaven. God speaks through Peter such that we really do transform the world. What, what difference does it make that we know who God is, who we are? What difference does it make that we know what of grace and, and live by it? I'll tell you what difference it makes. It changes the world. A generation ago, Dr. Um, Carl Henry, Carl F.H. Henry, shared great insights on this. He wrote a book called The Christian Mindset in a Secular Society. This was some time ago. Look what he said. Beleaguered by indelicacy and indecency, by tastelessness and vulgarity, our sophisticated society. By the way, is that well said or what? Folks, that was, that was just a description of the White House over the last couple of generations right there. Not to mention all the rest of us, indelicate, indecent, tasteless, vulgar. This is spot on. Listen, our sophisticated society is given on the one hand to hatred of ultimate truth, and on the other to irrational passion, skepticism, caricature, and ridicule of the gospel abound. Secularism is no less hardcore than pornography. Yet, he says... The same was true in the first centuries. And the early church didn't say, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. All God's people said. So let's start the change here and now. Here's our homework. This is drawn from one last what question. What do we do now? I've got four assignments for you for homework. Number one, name one area where you might struggle to, to stand firm in grace. You, you tend toward legalism or license. You, you, you struggle to persevere. Name one area. Number two, think of one aspect of your personality that is driven too much by you, by, by your flesh, and not empowered enough by God's grace. Number three, consider what earthly thing or things might be most likely to make you get deluded into thinking this is home. Number four, reflect on some aspect of your life where you can't see clearly. Okay, that's your homework. Now, 
Answer those prompts. And then once you have your four answers, make specific commitments in response to that. Here's how it works. For example, let me just share mine. Okay, let me just share mine with you. Our first assignment was name one area where you may struggle to persevere, stand firm. That was very easy for me. Probably 30 seconds I had to think on that, and the answer was prayer. I pray often, but I struggle to persevere in prayer. And here's why. This is very horrible and embarrassing to admit, but, but I have such confidence in self, what, I know, which is absurd, but I have such confidence in self that I tend to neglect the truth that I need God's grace every second of every day. I need to be engaged with God all the time. So then I have to make a commitment from that. So this was the commitment I made. I decided that, that every day when I open my phone to play Mario Kart, which is two or three times a day, that, that by the way, is my stress relief. Okay, when I'm feeling really stressed, I find great joy in knocking the snot out of children from all over the world playing Mario Kart. <laughs> Their tears are a balm to my soul. Um, so before I start Mario Kart, I'm going to spend protracted, and I've been doing this for a week since I worked on this, protracted time in prayer, and not just to win. <laughs> uh, number two, okay, these are mine. Number two is think of one aspect of your personality that's too much you and not enough empowered by God's grace. The answer for me was my sense of, there were a number, but probably the biggest is my sense of justice. I'll fight for right, which is great. What's not great as I'll do it by my indignation, by my righteous indignation. You do realize anger is a fake power. Well, there's power in anger, but it's false. It never achieves the righteousness of God. So here's my commitment that I made. And I've done this before, and I'm recommitting to it. Every time I catch self-righteousness or self-justification or self-protection in an email I'm writing, every time I hear self-righteousness come from my mouth, I'm going to stop. I don't know about you. For me, I have learned those are the tip-offs that I'm relying on the flesh. These are my warning signals about the flesh when I am, when I am defending myself. So I'm going to stop then and yield to the Lord. Let him be the one like the wonderful mom at the pharmacy. Number three was consider what earthly thing might make you be thinking this is home. That one was very easy for me as well. It was my wonderful family. Love my precious family, which is biblically healthy. However, they're not supposed to be an idol, and they can easily become one. So how am I going to do? What's my commitment? This is my commitment. I'm going to love them properly. So every time I think of them, which is many, many times a day, I'm going to praise God for them and commit to follow him, not them, not, not even Kenobi. Don't, don't tell him, though. Okay, number four, reflect on some aspect of life where you can't seem to see clearly. This one for me is the near-term future of the church in the United States. I think I can see fairly well the medium-term future. I have a fairly good grasp of what's going to happen there. The long-term is easy. Scripture lays that out. We know the end of the story. But the, but the near-term, I can't see. And that's, that's frightening. We hate it when we can't see. So my commitment from that is every time I start to get concerned about that, I'm just going to count my blessings. Because there is nothing like gratitude to change your perspective. I'm going to count my blessings. Okay, those are mine. You see how it works? Now, here's what you need to do. I, I really encourage you, take some time to prepare your own applications to those four questions, those four prompts, um, and, and, then, and then what your commitments are going to be. You can work on this at home, or, or if I can make a recommendation, probably the best 10 minutes to hour of your week is if you will stay right now after this service, unless you have responsibilities elsewhere. There are wonderful sitting areas all around this, this property that are beautiful places inside and out where you can just sit and think. R write out your answers right now before you even go home. Now, when you're done, if, if you're willing, send them to me, would you? 
I, I shared mine with you. I'd like to see yours. Now, I may not be able to respond to them all immediately. Don't be hurt if I don't answer for a couple of days. But, but I will read them all, and I would love to. You can send them to that email address right there. All right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for these precious, precious people with whom I get to grow up in Jesus. And I pray that you will inspire us and convict us so that we really will apply what it means to stand firm in grace. In grace, not in our flesh. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.